This week's show is supported by Cardio Women's Initiative. The Cardio Women's Initiative is an incredible program which provides women founders with mentorship, training, and funding. If your business has an environmental or social impact, find out more and apply now via the link in the show notes. Applications close 30th of June, 2023. Hello and welcome to The Crux, the weekly Women's Agenda podcast. In today's ep, we ask if it really was a budget for women. We talk about Twitter's new CEO and we share more about the mental load that really comes up around Mother's Day. Plus, as a little bonus, the stage three tax cuts that are likely to blow out and probably not going to benefit you that much. Thank you for listening. We are recording this episode of The Crux on the 17th of May, 2023. My name is Angela Priestley, and I'm joined by my co-founder and Women's Agenda editor, Tyler Lambert. Hello, Tyler. Hey, Ange. So we have taken a bit of a hiatus from this podcast, and I blame you, Tyler, for jetting off to the UK and leaving me by myself to do all the work. (laughs) Uh, But (laughs) Not bitter at all. (laughs) to take on the mental load and the physical load of women's agenda. But we are back and there's a lot that's got us talking this week as usual. But first, let's start with the wins. Tala, what's your win for this week? I have got a win and I think it really has to go to Sam Kerr, um, who delivered Chelsea's only goal in the final match of the FA Cup this week. And she did it in signature Sam Kerr style with the best celebration at the end of it, a massive backflip. And it was just such a, a great, epic moment. And it was really good to see this kind of hype. It's almost like a precursor to what we can expect from her representing Australia in the Women's World Cup in July, which I am getting very excited about. Did you say it? I did, and I can't watch people doing like those backflips <laughs> without uh, a lot of concern about them rolling their ankle or breaking their ankle or I don't know. It does make me very jealous as a woman who's had two babies, like looking at people do those like feats of athleticism. I'm like, how in God's name is your body physically equipped to do <laughs> such a thing? Like I'm hobbling around like... <laughs> most of the time like um jumping on a trampoline like anyone who jumps on a trampoline I was like yeah yeah gravity would not be kind to me (laughs) post many childbirths but anyway my win is a little bit different so we will be talking a little bit more about the budget but I thought I'd throw this up as a win so last week Madeline Hislop and I went into the budget lockup and for those who don't know, obviously you can't take your phone in, you can't take your fitness watch in as I learned last week either. And you obviously can't use Wi-Fi or anything. So you go in and you kind of go over the papers. And so basically you get given a USB and you can download the documents from there and you can start going through and prepare your stories or look at your research or really try to go through the papers as much as you can in those five or so hours that you have. And if you forget to bring your USB as I did, they happen to have some spare copies of the budget. So it's like this big stack of like budget books and it gets handed to you by a treasury official. Anyway, so I like opened mine up, not as excitedly as other people because I was sort of thinking we have a long time to go and it feels like forever when you're sitting there for that long without any kind of Wi-Fi or a phone. But um, I was very happy to see that the women's budget statement was sitting atop the papers It was at least one or two. I can't remember, but I remember it was very much at the top and it was good to see. And it marks also, again, just quite a refreshing change from recent years. Obviously, this is the second women's budget statement following the first in October last year. But when it went like a few years there when you wouldn't even get the mention of women in the budget speech or really anything at all in terms of the budget to actually see 
this being given prominence. And it's not just about the measures that are outlined in the statement, but also the fact that they really do go out and put up in front the issues confronting women. So they uh, bring in all this different research and reports and looking at various gender pay gaps, looking at feminized industries and various other things to highlight, um, you know, a lot of the why behind some of those measures. So mm. that was a win for me and a win for me also for Minister for Women, Senator Katie Gallagher, which comes, um, we did see how the single parenting payment has been lifted. So the cutoff age of your youngest child in order to receive the single parenting payment has gone from age eight to 14 with that budget. Mm-hmm. And I wrote a piece last week looking at the, uh, the you know, the personal stories that kind of come into it and how it sort of reflects a win for, I guess, bringing diversity and diversity of experience into parliament particularly. And in this case, it was uh, from Senator Katie Gallagher, who also happens to be the Minister for Finance, who herself had lived on that payment and spoke about how it had changed her life and it Mm -hmm. had saved her when she was in her 20s and she had a young child. Senator Gallagher was widowed when she was pregnant with her first child. So I thought it was interesting to see that personal story and to highlight the diversity of experience that comes into Parliament and how, you know, it's not everything in terms of contributing to these massive changes, but it's certainly, Mm. I mean, it can help and it certainly can help in articulating the why behind the change as well. Yeah, I thought it was interesting you noted the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, in that piece as well, who, you know, is quite vocal about living with a, a mother who was on the, the disability pension and who also received that payment. And I read a piece this week that he was almost so incensed at the time that it got repealed by the Julie Gillard government infamously on the the same day that she did the misogyny speech but that he nearly went to the backbench as a result so it I think it obviously is a policy that was very close to his heart and I think it will make a significant difference um, to the lives of a lot of single parents predominantly who are women mm-hmm. and that is my win so we should we talk a little bit more about the budget because the budget itself wasn't really a win for me <laughs> <laughs> um yes look I mean, I know you will have you have a lot to say on this and I don't disagree that it wasn't a huge win for women. I think that there was some tinkering around the edges and I think that that lifting of the single parenting payment age was really significant. I think obviously we know that there have been other measures that have come into effect with the childcare policy meant to be implemented in July. Um, so there are things that are happening, but I think it was perhaps a little bit of a beat up to say that it was a uh, a women's budget. So, Ange, go on. Yeah, a women's budget. I guess I understand the moderate measures and the need to kind of counterbalance, you know, inflation and cost of living measures that came through as well. And we did see that $14.6 billion cost of living package that has, you know, a number of incentives to benefit those who are most vulnerable, which will certainly include women there. Obviously, we didn't see a huge rise in the job seeker payment. It doesn't really amount to much per day. And I guess uh, what I kind of saw was, like I said, you know, you see these gaps outlined in the statement and it is really good. And I really want to commend the Albanese government for, for doing that and making it really kind of clear this is what we are up against. But I just felt that the measures weren't really responding enough 
to it. And we certainly saw that. I mean, what's been outlined for ending domestic and family violence, for ending violence against women and children, what's been outlined, it's just not enough. It's not what the uh, sector is calling for. The sector is calling for $1 billion a year, which is, you know, desperately needed to deal with this issue. You look at other things like the aged care payment, the 15% payment, which goes to aged care workers and follows a Fair Work Commission decision and is going to cost around $11 billion over the next four years, I believe it is. Again, it is a win, but it's only for one sector. We really need to say that across, you know, early childhood education. We need to say that for nurses. We need to say that elsewhere. And also, I also look at that and think, is that a win for for women necessarily? Does that go into the women's statement there mm. when it's for aged care workers, which, you know, technically is everyone? But One of the key concerns I had, and I've tried to ask a few more questions about this, and I hope to learn a little bit more, is about the gender responsive budgeting that we keep hearing about, which is meant to be happening. And what I've kind of learned is that that gender responsive budgeting and the idea of looking at, you know, budget measures from the perspective of women and how they'll impact women it's not really happening to the extent that we may like to see or think it is happening. So, you know, you do get a nice uh, budget book, as I have here, um, (laughs) to to prove I I was there and I did pick it up and I did read it. But then I'm just concerned that there's not enough transparency around which policies are actually getting that gender responsive sort of treatment, how they're getting assessed, what the assessment involves, how they get selected, why they get selected. We just don't know. And so Mm. I might like look at other ones and I've tried to sort of touch on this and look at this, but when I think about, you know, some of the measures that wouldn't come anywhere near to the women's budget statement, say, uh, you know, what we'll spend on AUKUS and uh, the submarine still. It's like, what would it mean to look at that from a gender perspective? What it would mean to think, you know, these are the jobs that are, you know, meant to be created from a package like that and the many, many, many billions that would be spent there. But who will those jobs go to? How do we ensure those jobs don't merely create more gender gaps in the future, whether that's around pay or whether that's around you know, reducing the proportion of women in STEM. So things like that where I just think like we need to have more transparency and I'd just like to see so much more being done in terms of these yeah. gender assessments across policies to take them out of sort of the more obvious policies. Like I, I wonder, like maybe the aged care thing did get that assessment. Maybe it didn't, but maybe it didn't. So you can see how, yes, that could benefit women because it's a majority female workforce. That's all very positive. That's great. But like, what about the uh, less obvious women's initiatives and things? Yeah, I think that that's a fair question. And perhaps that's something that the government really needs to look at doing in a more comprehensive way and more, I don't want to say meaningful way, because it sounds like, you know, I feel like what they're doing is tokenistic, which isn't necessarily the case. I think the steps they've taken thus far have been, you know, important. But I think you're right. There is obviously a need to to go further. And certainly I was disappointed as well in the, the funding around domestic and family violence. I think that that was a huge, huge missed opportunity when there has been any number of experts around this area calling for greater funding for years now. And we are making some kind of inroads, but but we know, you know, the gravity of the crisis at the moment and it's only been exacerbated by socioeconomic barriers and other kind of pressures that exist after the pandemic, after, you know, climate-related events. You know, we need so much more attention. We need so much more funding um, into that issue. So mm. a budget win for women, eh, like maybe better than some years. 
<laughs> but it, would, it was a pretty low bar, let's face it. It was a like, low bar. It was a low bar. step it up. That's like me looking at like when I tidy, you know, my home. I'm like, <laughs> it's great, but it was a pretty low bar to start with. So um, I might also add there this stage three tax cuts. So new costings that are out today, so I'll be quick here, but I think it's important to note because I think it also puts in perspective, you know, that we, we do have the ability to kind of shift things around and change things with courage to perhaps change other things such as previously legislated items. So stage three tax cuts, which are due for midway through next year, new figures today from the Independent Parliamentary Budget Office highlight how the costs on that have actually blown out. So we're looking at that being a massive $313 billion over the next decade. Um, And these costings reveal, so there has been some kind of gender analysis here, but these costings reveal that men are set to take 65% or $203 billion from those cuts compared to $109 billion for women. And around two-thirds of that $313 billion will go to the top 20% of income earners. (laughs) The Australia Institute also has really good analysis of the Stage 3 tax cuts as well, where they look at the fact that, you know, it's really high income earners, so you're typically higher paid professions who will benefit from these tax cuts, but uh, your low mid income earners will not and in some cases could be paying more tax and those low income earners tend to cover, uh, you know, like nurses and mm. teachers. And so there's a bit of an issue here. So, you know, these stage three tax, the Albanese government has indicated they are going ahead. Uh, they were legislated by the Morrison government back in 2019. I dare suggest 2019 was a very different period to 2023. And as we've seen, you know, we, we just look at this rising cost of living and the pressures that people are facing. Yeah. And yet, you know, we're kind of looking at, you know, there's a lot of money that will be going to high income earners. And there's yeah. a huge proportion of Australia and workers who are going to it's not so much missing out, it's just not be benefiting from this to the extent that other people are benefiting from this. And I mean, again, a lot of billions that could go to things. Billions, like- you know, and, and when you look at something like, you know, the job seeker payment that they did lift it marginally uh, in the budget, but I think it's an increase by $40 per fortnight, um, which is, you know, so far from what the research is telling us is is needed for people to to kind of keep up with these cost of living pressures, not fall into poverty. You know, that's one thing like the domestic family violence rate and funding there, you know, there are so many areas that we need to be putting this money um, and, you know, tax cuts for the wealthiest dudes in Australia, probably not high on the, uh, the pecking order there. No. Yeah. So, so your one billion. If we could like lift that to one billion a year on women's uh, ending violence against women, and that is the Albanese government's stated plan. They want to achieve that. Like one billion a year. Can we afford that? Mm. I think we can. Well, when you see what we're spending it on in other places, yeah, it's hard to comprehend how we couldn't afford it. And also, what are the consequences of not affording it? You know, that's the other question. What does affording it actually mean? Can we afford to lose the number of lives that we're losing? Because I don't think so. (laughs) Okay, and we should probably move on to a different topic. I know that we can get eaten up by politics and you and I both feel quite passionately about a lot of this. But our second story today starts with Elon Musk, uh, which is often not a great start to a story. 
But in this case, we're okay with it. I know that you're actually generally okay with Elon. <laughs> That's a story. It's a story for another time. Um, <laughs> because Elon resigned as Twitter CEO this week and he did so with a post on his platform and very mysteriously alluded to his replacement being a woman who would take the helm in a matter of weeks. It's since been noted that the woman in question is, in fact, Linda Yaccarino, the former global advertising and partnerships officer at NBC Universal, who shattered glass ceilings in a male-dominated industry. But despite shattering those glass ceilings, she has also been uh, touted to be on a glass cliff right now because taking the reins of Twitter is not such an enjoyable task. I imagine after what Elon Musk has done to that social media giant. So, Ange, what are your feelings on this one? Um, where to start? I mean, I've seen quite a few pieces now looking at um, whether Linda is heading for a glass cliff with this position and I feel like I can confidently say that she is very much standing <laughs> at the top of one already. Um, so for those who don't know, the glass cliff, I'm going to, and I'm just stealing this definition direct from whatever Google just threw up at me, but the glass cliff is a, this idea of a woman being likelier than a man to achieve leadership roles, such as executives, such as a CEO position, or even, um, a role in politics. We can look to former UK Prime Minister Theresa May here, that women are more likely to get those roles during periods of crisis or downturn when the risk of failure is highest. So. Linda, I just feel that she would have to be pretty incredible, like <laughs> the most remarkable person in human history uh, <laughs> to be able to work with Musk, to be able to meet his demands and to be able to turn things around at Twitter and get it anything uh, close to profitable. I believe Musk says it is breaking even now, but the, you know, the figures are not actually released. And I, I'm a, you know, a regular Twitter user, so I can also see how the platform has changed and I'm spending less time on it now. I can see it's gone significantly downhill with a lot of their changes in recent months. So I'm not kind of just looking at this from the outside. I think, you know, those of us who spend time on Twitter, we, we can see that it has changed and it's difficult to trust. I lost my blue tick, which I'm a little bit upset about because it took so long to get a blue tick, but also at the same time, I'm not going to go and you know, purchase the blue tick because I don't get the point of it because anyone, it, there's sort of, there's no way to prove identity or anyone behind the scenes sort of enabling that basically you can kind of call yourself anything and get a blue tick for it. And I also note on Elon Musk's tweet about the appointment is that she will be helping to transform Twitter <laughs> into X, the everything app, which is, seems like quite the project. <laughs> <laughs> And that is, you know, I, I yeah, what I've read on various things. He does want to do a lot more with, with Twitter app, including payments and things like that. So, yeah, I just think that pretty tough in this position. And I might, Elon Musk even himself said a few months back that, yeah, he did want to appoint a CEO. And I can't remember the exact quote, but it was something like anyone who would take the job would have to be uh, pretty foolish which doesn't speak much confidence uh so you gotta love some elon talk don't you because yeah i i mean i think is as you say you know what does being ceo of twitter actually mean when when elon is still the owner of it um and clearly has a very strong opinion of himself and his own expectations and view of how the platform should live and thrive and or you know, maybe not so much thrive, maybe live and die. But 
I just think it is a huge task. She is going to want to be on the hugest wicket ever to have to deal with Elon Musk on a regular basis. I also want to note just quickly something that I found so funny this week was when that post was dropped by Elon and the tweet that he went out with around his resignation and the speculation around who would be the CEO and a trend took place on Twitter where people were just doctoring photos of Elon Musk to look like a woman and suggesting (laughs) that the next CEO of Twitter would just be Elonia. Uh, (laughs) Elonia. Oh, I like it. (laughs) (laughs) But I really found that quite enjoyable this week watching that because, you know, if anyone was going to try to pretend that they were a woman and still keep the power it may be Elon Musk but yeah look nonetheless congratulations to Linda Yaccarino I guess it is a huge I mean it's a huge accomplishment to to be you know helming one of the largest social media companies in in the world and hopefully she can bring it back from you know this point of no return Mm. Okay, so just on to our next story this week and one that went completely berserk across social media on the weekend and we think we might know why. So the story was called Spare the Breakfast in Bed, Let's Give Mums a Gift of a Less Extreme Mental Load and it was written by Maya Paleka, the co-founder and director of Milo, which is an Aussie uh, startup working out of the Macquarie University incubator on solving the problem of the mental load on families. So Maya wrote about Mother's Day and the usual kind of hoopla of breakfast in bed, flowers, chocolate, et cetera. I can, I can confidently say I didn't get any of that, by the way. But uh, she wrote about the fact that it's all very nice, except that women and mothers want more at this point. We want to alleviate the mental load that's crippling us on a daily basis. Tyler, why do you think that the reaction to this piece was so strong? <laughs> Uh, because we are so tired of it, um, I think is basically the crux of it. Um, yeah, I think this piece really resonated. It's probably not groundbreaking to suggest that women have too much of a, you know, mental load and we carry too much of the responsibility at home, at work, across society. But I think that Maya's piece was good in that it wasn't just complaining about the fact that we have this, you know, extreme mental load um, that we know we do have and we contend with. And I know that I love a vent and I don't want to dissuade anyone from venting about the mental load, but I think Maya's piece was important because she did note some very kind of tangible solutions that can be implemented within the household to make that mental load known between yourself and your partner and perhaps your your children, but also for it to be shared. So she noted some tips um, such Mm. as being forward focused, so starting the conversation from not looking for who is to blame but how you move forward together and just getting more organised isn't enough. You really do need to do things differently if you want to kind of shift that dynamic She talks about making the invisible visible. One of you has a lot of implicit knowledge and does a lot of things that the other doesn't even notice. And you need to take the time to transfer and share both of those. You need to empower yourself with the tools. You need to help get stuff out of your head, uh, release 
that cognitive capacity and making it visible to your partner is part of that. Sharing an event is not enough. So surface all the bits that need to be planned, prepared, thought of ahead of time, including things like, you know, kids going to birthday parties, meeting our means RSVPs, buying a present, blah, blah, blah. That's what we need to, to kind of bring up and we need to, to try to huddle up. So once a week, have a chat with your partner, get on the same page about, you know, what's coming up in the week. And I guess that saves the on the go frustration of thinking that no one is going to support you. Obviously, there's a lot more in it. There's a lot more to unpack. There are a lot of structural barriers at play that need to be addressed in order for that to actually end. (laughs) But I think that it was a good piece to focus on, you know, some of the things that we can do to try to shift the dial there. Yeah, exactly. Some really great, like, yeah, solution oriented. That's what we need. It wasn't sort of a rant on it. And because we've heard this before and fair enough, like we can relate to, relate to these issues so much. So it was nice to hear some solutions. Can really relate. And we're going to jump to our interview today now with the remarkable winner of the Cartier Women's Initiative Oceana region, Ingrid Seely. Ingrid is a social impact entrepreneur and through her business, TeachWell, she's critically improving the educational outcomes for Australian students with support and high impact training for teachers. Women's Agenda journalist Madeline Hislop interviewed Ingrid this week, so we'll jump to that now. Hi Ingrid, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thanks so much for making the time. We really appreciate it during what I imagine is a very busy period for you. Thanks so much for having me, Madeline. It's a real pleasure to do this with Women's Agenda. Great. So I wanted to say a big congratulations on winning the Cartier Women's Initiative. Can you start by telling us a little bit about TeachWell and your catalyst for starting it? Sure. So about a decade ago, um, I had two small children and I was thinking about where I wanted my time in my life to be spent. And I really wanted to uh, shift some of my work time towards something that was socially motivated. I thought if I'm spending time away from my beautiful young children and my young family, I really want this to be something that I feel is important, that enables me to throw myself into it as well, but also in the knowledge that I can say to my children, actually, this is work that benefits others as well. And so that this is is part of the reason I'm not um, home for dinner or if I'm working after dinner, that's why. This is for something that's bigger than me and, and bigger than our family too. And so I started with a program at a foundation and this was a not-for-profit working in the education space. And that's something I've always been really passionate about. I come from a family of educators. My mother was a chemistry and physics teacher. My older sister taught at university and I've always taught music privately. I'm a cellist. And so that's been a big part of my life as well. And I really believe strongly in the power of that teacher-student relationship in in shaping both of those people, shaping what it means to be a teacher and to feel a sense of contribution and also the power that that brings to a student and their ability to realise their hopes and dreams. And as part of this foundation program, we were working with school leaders across complex communities, so 80 different schools, looking at how they could improve outcomes for their students, academic outcomes. And through that work, it became clear pretty quickly that the initiatives that were making the biggest difference where school leaders were spending their time and actually seeing results was really in the classroom. Uh, Students are in class six hours a day in Australia, roughly. And so if you uh, do something differently in that time, you can really magnify the impact of that really quickly. 
And it became clear that some schools were able to adopt this themselves. And there was a small group of schools who had taken these sheets of data, which were just covered in red boxes of, of students who were behind and weren't making enough progress. And they had transformed this into green boxes on a page. But of course, it's more than just green numbers and data. This is actually like real students' lives. And, and this is a group of students who were on track finally to pursue their hopes and dreams. And so we had a small number of schools that were making this progress. We had a lot of schools who weren't. And the question was, what can we do really to bring more of this work to those schools who are interested in spending more time in this space? And we ran some mini trials looking at the kind of teaching strategies and supporting teachers to upskill in this space and to really use the research in their classroom, not just to know about it, but to actually apply it every single day. And out of those trials, it became clear that there was a much more effective model for supporting teachers than the traditional models that we use in education. Uh, they require a little bit more input and investment from a teacher. You put in a little bit more, but you get out so much more. And we could sort of radically disrupt and transform the number of people that actually apply research into the classroom. And that was leading to teachers feeling really motivated and uh, re-engaged with their profession and with their vocation as teachers and big differences for students in classrooms. But we were only working with tens of teachers, you know, a handful of teachers in a couple of schools. And so the first question was, there are 32,000 teachers roughly in Western Australia. So if we're working in the tens of teachers, this, this doesn't have any ability to become more. School leaders just wanted more teachers and more opportunities and we couldn't provide them. And so that was really the catalyst for change five years ago. So in 2019, I thought it's time really to create a platform that will enable this work to be scaled, that we can make a team behind this, that we can have expertise from um, teachers who have worked in early childhood, kindergarten classrooms, right through to year 12, across you know the full breadth of subjects, that actually we can make sure that any teacher and any school that's interested in investing to see if they can get a little bit more for their students would be able to do that. And so that was really the catalyst for launching TeachWell, that we could actually bring this work at scale to regions right across initially Western Australia. So, you know, remote mining towns um, right through to places like Christmas Island in the Indian Ocean. So really remote geographies, not just metro schools across the full socioeconomic spread. So in communities that don't have as many resources right through to advantaged communities. And more recently, we've been working nationally, of course. But um, yeah, so five years on. Uh, TeachWell now sort of has that full team and we work across Australia and we're really pleased and proud that we're able to support so many schools in regional and remote Australia, not just in the metro areas. Thanks so much for sharing that background. It's so exciting to see you get recognised for this work. It's such an innovative idea. And so I guess I would love to hear about what your experience in Paris has been like and, you know, what it was like to be crowned first place for the Oceania region, for the women, Cartier Women's Initiative. It's such a big achievement. It does feel enormous. And this whole week in Paris has been completely surreal. It's unbelievable. I think I've never been in a room with such a diverse range of experiences and cultures. This is, um, you know, my 32 other fellows uh, from all across the globe. And they all have incredible social impact. So in some ways, it's it's really intimidating, maybe not intimidating, but um, it does sort of locate all our work within a global movement that shows how much promise there is and potential and how many people are working on very, very exciting things. So um, I think the fact that somehow we managed to, to get first place is um, feels a little bit lucky in this group because 
it, I do think anybody in Oceana could have won this category. So I feel really blessed that it was us. I'm super grateful that it is. Um, but it's just the most amazing group of people at, amongst the fellows, but also amongst the broader Cartier community that's here. So I feel like the jurors, um, the different venture capitalists we've been meeting all week, um, the previous fellows and laureates from uh, the other 15 years that this initiative has been running from, it's just uh, an incredible group of people who have all shared the same values and purpose and have really spent a lot of time in this space. So I'm um, I've been able to meet with people who are a lot further along the journey or have done this several times. And that's just, um, I've had the most fascinating conversations and it's really uh, a great way to expand thinking and to make new relationships and connections. So it's been um, incredible. Of course, we're in this amazing city and I feel like um, I used to live here actually for two years, a decade ago, but I've been to places in this city that are kind of like you would only get to go probably if you came with Katia. So we've um, had breakfast in rooms that have looked out over the most magnificent secret gardens. It's been um, just real. I feel very spoiled and very invested in. It's been incredible. Oh, wow. That's so great to hear. Yeah. Imagine being in Paris with Cartier. It sounds amazing, definitely. <laughs> and so I guess just going back to TeachWell uh, for a moment, I'd love to hear a little bit about, you know, the impact of the program on it among educators and teachers in particular um, who enroll in the programs. Could you share a little bit about what you're seeing? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, at the the at the end of the day, I think what we're looking to see and to support schools to achieve is actual is really a, a shift in academic outcomes for students. So to help them get more progress um, and achievement every year than our experienced educators have ever managed to get before. And I think that's every educator's goal is to make sure that they learn and grow um, throughout their professional life. And, and that means that they're always on the hunt for new ideas. And so it's our commitment to making sure that we actually help them see that through to the to that very final promise that there's more learning for their students in their class. Not that that's something that we think might happen or hope happens, but that it really does happen. And that's quite a big challenge, really, when you think about the fact that our teachers are very experienced in Australia. We are not the highest performing system in the world, but we we do well. We do not do so well for our students that come from low income backgrounds. So there's a big equity gap between um, our advantaged communities and our disadvantaged communities. So we've got a workforce that is already doing some great work. So our job is to build upon that and to build upon their strengths. So what we see is that more than 80% of our um, participants since 2019 have been able to get more progress and achievement for their students than they've ever got before. So that's um, the end goal. But what I guess that looks like and what that feels like if you're a, a school leader, um, these are really intractable problems trying to improve academic outcomes, especially in complex communities. They work so hard every day. They have so many fires to fight. Their time is split across so many things. So to find something that can reliably support their um, school community is really powerful. So school leaders are very passionate about the work that their teachers do as part of the program because it makes such a big difference. And I think for the teachers involved, um, this is frequently an experience that um, gives them a sense of self-efficacy and passion about their profession that, you know, the last couple of years have been very tough 
for teachers um, and the educator community with COVID. Mm -hmm. But this is a program that helps, I think, um, teachers feel more passionate about the work that they do. They feel like they have um, more efficacy than they've ever had before. And that's pretty incredible given that um, just across the board in Australia, we've had definite morale issues in teaching and that's um, there've been some very difficult circumstances. And so to see teachers feel more empowered, more passionate about the work that they're doing, as well as seeing more learning in their classrooms, that's what I think really gets teachers um, fired up is knowing that they can get more for their students. So I think whilst the numbers speak for themselves, we hear about academic learning. I think there's a lot of people who find this work, um, helps them stay connected with why they're teachers and what they hope to achieve. Yeah, and so then if we think about this impact it's having on teachers, if, we're, if we then turn it to look at students and how this support for teachers is actually helping to shift the dial for students, could you tell me a little bit more about that, um, especially thinking about those students who might be more economically vulnerable or disadvantaged? Yeah, so we work in a lot of our work is really focused in those communities where we think it's most needed, um, where we know we've got a lot of students behind. So definitely some of our more complex communities with very vulnerable students. Um, and I think what this feels like in a classroom, what we see is we um, ask students at the beginning of the course to tell us and to tell their teacher a little bit about what they see in the classroom. And then again, at the end of the course to tell us what's happening in there. Um, and this is really information for the teachers to see what happens in their classroom as well. And what we hear from students um, and what is sort of validated by their teachers is that peer behaviour in the classroom improves. So we see that generally this is a more orderly, um, calmer environment to participate in a classroom, that students are more engaged, that they participate more frequently and that they feel more motivated generally to put in a little bit of hard work during class time. And so that shifts the dynamic in a class and it's a really encouraging place to spend your day. You can imagine, you know, young people spend six hours a day at school. A lot of them wonder, what am I doing here? Or what's the purpose of this? Or how do I survive math? I don't like math or I don't like history or something like that. So what we see from students and what they tell us, and we've seen a really consistent trend um, in this over the last five years, is that this sort of touches a group of students um, to make them think differently about themselves and what their academic potential is. So they'll say things like, um, I don't think that people are who are successful just get there because they're lucky. I think they get there through hard work. And I think I feel more willing to apply some hard work in class when I pay attention, I do well. So I think this is not just um, about teachers feeling like uh, they have more efficacy. I think students notice this as well, that what's happening in the classroom leads to more learning. And that's really infectious because success is motivating. And so the more success you have in class, the more motivated you are to continue working hard for your teacher. So I think what we hear from students often is like, um, why can't my other teachers do this? Or can you help my other teachers find out about this? Because I want to see this in all my classes, not just in this one. And that's really exciting. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing. That's really great to hear. And I guess now I'd love to shift a little bit and talk about the Cartier Women's Initiative Program and a little bit how um, you're going to use that grant to support your business growth. Um, so you started with the program back in January. Could you just share a little bit about how the program has helped you so far and then what you're looking to do in the future? Sure. I actually feel, um, I guess technically the program started in January, but I sort of feel like the application process was also part of our journey. 
And that's because um, some of the work that we did as part of that application process gave me a chance to sort of stand back and really think about where I can take things with our social enterprise and what we want to do, like what would be most impactful for us and how we um, share our learnings and build um, the broader social impact agenda that we have. And so I sort of feel like already from this time last year, this process has sort of enabled me to um, think more um, strategically, I guess, and, and maybe just step back a little bit as COVID was unfolding. That's um, pretty hectic. And I think it was for almost everybody who was um, running an organisation or a business. Um, so that process, we, I could sort of stand back a little bit, look at, and I think there was a lot of support given to us during the application process too, to really think about um, what the potential was in that space. So uh, since January, I guess in the formal part of um, the award, um, I've been able to access some amazing coaching and um, some support to run some experiments. So as part of the coaching stream, I chose to focus on um, some experimentation. And uh, for us, that meant finding out about how our school leaders talk about the um, the program amongst themselves and how they spread the word. And uh, it was really fascinating. I didn't necessarily um, find like the, the magic a bullet to solve all trouble in the world, but it was really fascinating because I found out that our school leaders um, spend a lot of time talking about this with each other and that they're really keen to spread the word. And that was to put some metrics and to understand that a little better was very, very powerful. Um, and I've also um, been very fortunate to receive some um, support around um, press and media. And you won't know that from the podcast today, but if you could look at old Ingrid to today's Ingrid, I've made some ground. <laughs> so I think that kind of support's really important to me because that's not something that comes naturally to me. And I haven't had a lot of um, ex experience working in um, in press or media or communications and PR, any of that. And so that's been um, a wonderful experience to feel a little more supported in that space, given that most of the time I'm really thinking about teaching practices and what makes the biggest difference in a classroom, not how do I communicate this in other contexts. Yeah, that sounds great and really, really valuable. And you are doing very well. Um, you're speaking beautifully. <laughs> <laughs> and I would love to hear a little bit about what first drew you to the program. Were you encouraged to imply, apply for it? And how did that sort of come about? And is it also something that you'd encourage others to do? Absolutely. So I think this has been an amazing experience. Um, I think this is a program that that already has some longevity behind it. So 16th year, I feel, and, and talking to the other fellows um, here in Paris, I could sort of see the evolution of the program across that time and the investment that's been made to really understand what would make a difference for female entrepreneurs in the social impact space. Mm. Uh, and so I feel like there's a very deep commitment to this um, making a difference and that values alignment, I think you never are fully sure. And, and of course, Katia has a, an amazing brand that is about longevity and um, about doing things with rigor. And that's certainly what I've noticed throughout this process. I didn't know that at the beginning, but um, as I've gotten further through and I've had more to do with the Katia team and also with this community, this, this broader community, um, that is very much the case that I think it, there's a real focus not just on doing things for the sake of, um, you know, we need to have this or we're ticking a box over here, but really does this make um, sense? Is this something that's meaningful that will help us sustain this community? 
So um, it might sound a little bit deep and meaningful, but I guess that's quite special compared to other things that I have um, been fortunate to receive or apply for in the past. Um, I think that is something that makes this feel very different now that I'm on the inside of it. But it, even along the way, I could tell that this was something quite special. I do think it's very unusual to find um, an award of this size. And, um, you know, as Women Agenda has reported, even just in February, um, you know, only 3% of VC funding um, last year went to women only um, organised funders. And, and that's just such a tiny percentage. It's very hard to access. Um, support that can meaningfully um, enable our organisation to think differently and to spread our social impact. And so that in and of itself is really important. But at the end of the day, it wouldn't have mattered whether we were first, second or third. I feel like there's an enormous amount of support and being part of this community is very special. So, I mean, I also met some folks here who this isn't the first time they applied. They're here now as, as winners, but they um, had applied before and hadn't been successful. Their organisations were just too early stage and now they're back. And so I think there's something special about that, an award that can bring people back more than once. Yeah, so special, definitely. And so I'd love to talk to you a little bit more broadly about social impact ventures and this idea that it is often women at the helm of these kind of social uh, impact ventures. And we see it a lot in the business community and we report on it a lot at Women's Agenda. And I was wondering if you could share if you had any ideas around why you think women are invested in this space. So I think... Well, I guess maybe one thing that I notice sometimes, and maybe this is a small factor, maybe it's probably not the driving factor for why that is, but I do think um, women's careers have more interruptions, starts and stops sometimes. Um, even if even if you don't have children, that's the case. I think sometimes when you move around um, and if you, you know have a leadership team that's or men and you're waiting for someone to move on before there's a place free in there, women have to um, curate their experiences in their careers more, and I think, than, than men do. And maybe the upside of that is that there are these moments where you really can make a choice to um, pursue something that you think could be deeply meaningful. And I say that because it's so... Um, I think sometimes as a man, maybe you can sort of stand on the treadmill and the treadmill just takes you forward. And so it's all just mapped out and there seems like a big opportunity cost to hop off that um, and do something that's bold and different. Um, it's just too easy maybe to stay on that path. And so maybe the upside of the adversity that so many women face in their industries is that it does encourage you to think um, maybe this is worth it. Maybe this is my moment to go and try something that will, that I will feel proud of that will really make a big difference. Um, because it's not so straightforward wherever I am or whatever I'm doing to just see the path straight to the top. Um, and I and I do think maybe sometimes opportunity cost is something that um, stands in people's way. When I launched Teach Well, I was in this very fortunate position that my husband had stability in his work. And so I knew that if I was working for free and that we had some money on the line in these initial phases, I'm trying to pay a team that actually I had sort of this backup from him and I had the stability from him and that the opportunity cost was really that, okay, I might take a few more years out of my career before I head back to do something else if it's not successful. Um, and so I think that gave me the freedom to think, you know what, I, if this doesn't work, that's okay too. That doesn't um, 
you know, I won't take that too personally. It's an idea. I really think we should try it and I'll feel so proud if we can make it work. But if it doesn't, I'll be okay. And I, and I do think maybe because um, we don't have that continuity and that direct pathway to um, being backed and, and turning into the C-suite everywhere, you know, sometimes I think maybe that's our only asset. And not that I'm promoting that, but maybe there's something in there. I don't know. No, I do. I think you're onto something there, definitely. Yeah, for sure. And so I guess just to finish off, I'd love to just hear maybe to sum up a little bit about your ultimate vision for Teachwell. And, you know, if you look into the future, what are your sort of hopes and how do you see it evolving? So what started as a project really that was about improving outcomes in Western Australia and closing the gap for disadvantaged and advantaged students in WA, we're certainly a long way into um, achieving that. And I think as we've gotten further through that journey and you can start to see it come through at state level in our academic data, it's really exciting. So we're going to continue to pursue that. That's where we live. That's where we're based. We're on Wajapuja and we're deeply committed to making a difference in Western Australia. We've also been working over East and um, the ACT in New South Wales, and that work has been super fascinating and very impactful, and I think has helped us see that um, this is really work that would make a difference across um, all the states in Australia, really. There's no reason why we couldn't um, serve uh, communities in Queensland and Victoria, especially um, vulnerable communities, like you say. So I'd love to see this work. Um, in some other states in Australia, this is, um, it is work that we know already can work really well to improve academic outcomes right across the nation. And I think probably across Oceania. So if I think about New Zealand um, and the broader, even heading west um, across the Indian Ocean, there are many different countries that I think um, would benefit from being able to access some of this kind of uh, support for teachers and school leaders. So there's that side. And I think the other side is we're part of a community um, where there's, you know, the scale is huge. We've got millions of students. We've got, you know, hundreds of thousands of teachers. So it's also about sharing our learnings and contributing to that community so that others can improve their impact and that their work goes more smoothly. And that does it, that's not something that will sustain our organisation, but it will certainly help us reach that social impact mission. So I think twofold on that, that we contribute to the global evidence base around what makes a difference um, and that that can be spread and shared and we try and be as generous as possible with all systems about what we're learning and what we think has been important so that when they're designing things for their teachers at scale that they can um, put some more of these elements in there and then also of course making sure that you know, our work directly um, reaches more students across Australia and the region. That sounds like such a great note to end on. Thank you so much. And we'll be following closely on Women's Agenda, I'm sure. It's very, very exciting. And another big congratulations on the award. Thank you so much to your team as well for um, having me today. It's such a pleasure to share some of our work with your amazing community. Uh, that was such a great conversation. I love the immense impact that Teachwell is having and how women are really leading the charge with social enterprises like this. It's awesome to see that Teachwell now has the opportunity to expand its footprint further after winning the Cartier Women's Initiative as well. So congratulations, Ingrid. Okay, Ange, I think that kind of wraps us up for the week. But do you have any last thoughts um, in your mind as we head into the next week? Yes, I do. So, I mean, I've always got 
too many thoughts in my mind so I'll try and distill this into one thing but um, so we have just released the findings of our latest uh, women's ambitions survey and so we surveyed 1100 women over the past few weeks to ask about their ambitions for the next couple of years and what if anything they believe might get in the way. Uh, so similar to previous years, we found that confidence is uh, an inhibitor and a hurdle that women believe could get in the way. But that confidence is actually lower this year in terms of being a perceived hurdle than it was in previous years. And this year, burnout has overtaken confidence. So burnout came up as the leading potential hurdle that women believe might get in the way of their careers. And on that as well, three quarters of respondents said they believe they may have experienced burnout in the past 12 months. Yeah. I mean, I think that this report, and we do do it every two years, this is the fourth one, as you noted, it has brought up some really interesting findings. And, you know, one thing that that kind of stuck out to me was Obviously, women's ambitions are still incredibly high. Um, so 36% of us are looking to earn more in the next two years. 26% of us are looking, uh, are planning to look for a new role. 25% of us are aiming to get promoted. So, you know, our ambitions and what we are seeking to achieve in our careers is really there. But it is contending with these barriers. And some of them, alarmingly, are new barriers that have cropped up because of, you know, new socioeconomic pressures. So, you know, something like burnout, while that did exist in previous years, we know that it has been a bigger degree of that um, after the pandemic, particularly around um, care workforces that are dominated by women. We know that, you know, something like one of the stats that was that was um, regularly noted in the report as well was around how hybrid work and remote work was causing invisibility in the workplace with people, um, you know, feeling like, you know, they weren't visible to their manager um, and weren't getting the opportunities at work to get ahead as a result. So a lot of the focus on remote and hybrid work has been on the positive aspects of it which we know exist obviously it leads to greater flexibility it leads to you know us being able to manage our lives in the way that we want to but I think that greater analysis needs to be done on what the consequences of of that new way of operating um, are so yeah I agree I'm thinking about that report and we've got it up on site now and and hopefully we'll um we'll be able to do a lot more with those stats and with that data. Um, we are running another roundtable in June with various organisational leaders uh, to, to kind of gauge what their thoughts are on it and also what their experience is within their own teams. So watch this space for that. Or listen to this space. Listen to this space. Perhaps. <laughs> or you could watch it or you could read it on uh, Women's Agenda. Uh, so that's it for us this week. Thank you for listening to The Crux Women's Agenda's weekly podcast. A reminder, you can subscribe to our Lunchtime Daily newsletter and you can also check out all the stories and issues that we've discussed today in on our website. And you can also download that ambition report that we've just mentioned at the end of the episode there as well. Thank you for listening.